Russia's Sputnik V coronavirus vaccine is at the centre of several political rows in Europe. We'll discuss the latest. The Republic of Ireland unveils ambitious plans to reboot its rural economy in the years after the pandemic. And not that we're counting or anything, but there are 48 days to go until this year's Eurovision Song Contest takes place in Rotterdam. We'll hear from one of this year's hopefuls before the end of the programme. Monocle's editors are here to discuss those stories today on the latest edition here on Monocle 24. Hello there and a very warm welcome to you to the late edition here on Monocle 24. It is Wednesday the 31st of March and I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto and joining us today from Midori House in London are Chris Chermack, Monocle's news editor and Chiara Ramella, Monocle's culture editor. Chiara, Chris, great to have you both with us on the programme today. We are at the middle of another week at the end of March. I can't quite believe it how quickly the time's going. How are things looking for you in this sort of semi-post-lockdown world? Uh, Kiara in London this week. Well, it's really interesting you should say this uh, post-lockdown, almost post-lockdown world, because I would say that London this week has really felt transformed. All it needed was just a little bit of sunshine to come through the clouds. But it is remarkable how the lifting of certain regulations, so we're now allowed to um, meet with five other people outdoors in a park. And just that has changed the face of the city completely. It was just a little bit sunnier over the last couple of days. And if you walk past uh, Regent's Park or Primrose Hill Park, um, it, it was just heaving with people just enjoying the rays. So it really has felt like London as busy as we haven't seen it in months and months and months. And as for us, we always keep busy um, at Monocle. And I'm really pleased to say that the first few copies of Compex Number 2 have arrived in the office. And it's, uh, it's been looking really sunny as well. So sun outside and in. And Chris, the last time we spoke, you were dreaming of venturing onto a tennis court once again. Have you dusted off the tennis whites yet? Is it still early days for that? I am. I am dreaming and not dreaming quite anymore. It's been tough to get tennis courts because everyone is out with the nice weather, but I actually have one scheduled for right after this tonight um, for my first uh, for my first tennis game of the year. Super excited. And uh, just to back up Chiara on that, it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, it's just that combination that you feel almost felt like, frankly, some kind of, uh, you know, divine intervention to have on the day that uh, lockdown, outside lockdown ends, if you will. We have this glorious record sunshine for March here in the UK. Uh, it might be switching again in the next few days, but but we're not going to complain. We're, we're enjoying it over here. Chris and Chiara, great to have you both with us here on the programme today. The Kremlin has said that Russia's president, Vladimir Putin, has held talks with Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel and the president of France, Emmanuel Macron, on supplying doses of Russia's coronavirus vaccine, Sputnik V, to Europe, where the vaccination process has been hit by delays and arguments over distribution. Chris, to begin with you, what do you think we should make of these reports about a possible collaboration here between Europe and Russia on the vaccines? Well, what can you say? I mean, there's been such a confusing mix of vaccine diplomacy and vaccine distribution uh, in the European Union, um, really, since the start of this year. And what, what's interesting about this, so yes, uh, Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron held a uh, video teleconference uh, with Vladimir Putin um, on Tuesday to discuss potentially getting 
um, the Sputnik V vaccine. And it's just that in itself is is interesting and tells you uh, just where we are at this point. I mean, it's it's fascinating for so many different reasons um, because, you know, on the one hand, um, it's just something that wasn't necessarily planned for before. And so it is a sign um, of the fact that the rollout is going uh, so poorly in the European Union that you're seeing countries like France and Germany now at this point uh, turn to a new provider, uh, if you will, because they're just not getting enough of what they had ordered previously. Um, now, saying that, at the same time, I also do find it interesting to have this sort of you know, geopolitical discussion, if you will. You could ask, you know, why was Russia's vaccine not part of the plan in the first place? I mean, because there is some debate there to say, well, yes, Europe and Russia have been at odds over a number of issues over the last year. And I thought it interesting that the French, particularly, for example, in this call yesterday, kind of threw in on the one hand, yes, we discussed the Russian vaccine and, and potentially getting our hands on Sputnik V, but we did also mention Alexei Navalny and we also talked about Ukraine and we talked about all the other things that are, you know, completely souring relations between Europe uh, and Russia. But at the same time, you know, you, you can make this argument to say, well, maybe they should have already earlier um, divorced the two, if you will, because Russia is known for... It's science. It's known for uh, promising results when it comes to to healthcare, and so in that sense, um, you know, this is something that could have perhaps been discussed earlier. And it also goes to this interesting uh, challenge that Europe has right now between, on the one hand, uh, the, the challenge of distribution, as I was mentioning. But then on the other hand, the challenge of just confidence uh, in vaccines. And you're seeing this huge divide within that too, particularly, uh, of course, and we're, we're, we'll only maybe touch on that today, but this con- continuing debate over AstraZeneca in the European Union is really undermining the confidence of many Europeans. Um, you know, back and forth suspensions of the vaccine is sort of undermining the confidence of many Europeans on whether they should take a vaccine like uh, like AstraZeneca. And on the other hand, then, you know, to put it in this interesting positive light, if you will, there are plenty areas of Europe that still do have quite a positive view of Russia. Um, and I, you can't help but feel that that is part of the motivation almost, if you will, uh, here too. When it comes to Eastern Germany, for example, you wonder whether that's sort of almost playing a little bit into Angela Merkel's calculation. Um, You're obviously seeing Eastern European countries that are more interested in considering the the Russian vaccine, whether that's Hungary or Slovakia, although there's been a big political crisis there as well because they secretly ordered the vaccine, and that's a whole other crazy story. Um, And, you know, Austria is also considering it. So not every country in Europe is... you know, is as negative, if you will, towards Russia geopolitically, is more open to working with Russia when it's necessary, when it's important. And therefore, you know, also Baltic nations might might be more willing to take this vaccine or at least not have this uh, knee-jerk lack of trust, if you will, towards the vaccine. And at the end of the day, you really just want the entire population vaccinated, don't you? You don't really care where it comes from. You want it to be safe and you want people to take it. Uh, whichever country that is, 
um, you know, is key. And one final mention on that is just to say, you know, we're waiting for the European Medicines Agency as well to approve Russia's vaccine. But there is a good chance that they will be doing that in the next uh, few weeks. And Kiara, how complicated do you think playing into that, that the geopolitics of coronavirus vaccines is now getting right now? Well, I would like to expand on the idea that Chris was just mentioning there, which is this idea of um, divorcing, you know, Russia's um, political uh, past or political present from its uh, vaccine production. And I think a country that's really going to be struggling with that, particularly now, is Italy. So Italy, over the past few months, I guess, has really opened up to the idea of not only taking some of the Sputnik vaccine, but also becoming host to the production of the vaccine. So there is already a deal in place on the part of a Swiss-Italian company to produce it in the country in Lombardy, even though obviously those doses won't be administered to Italian citizens until the EMA does approve the vaccine. But then there are also talks about using one of the biggest vaccine production facilities in Italy to produce um, Sputnik V separately from from the other Swiss-Italian venture. So obviously, if Italy were to produce the vaccine on its national territory, it would be a huge endorsement of the vaccine and a huge soft power win for Russia in this respect. But you have to also, on the other side, on you know, on the other side of this divorcing of, of perspectives, you have to consider that today two Russian officials were expelled from Italy because a a marine navy official of Italy and an and an attache, a Russian attache, were actually caught and um, detained upon accusations of espionage. (laughs) So there is a huge diplomatic between Italy and Russia. And have to see the situation will develop in terms of how much Italy will be able to divorce this political situation, this huge diplomatic issue. Uh, from a potential endorsement of the Russian vaccine. So, you know, yes, we can talk about how, um, you know, (laughs) any vaccine is better than no vaccine, but everything comes with a bit of a side helping of history. And it's, I think it will become increasingly hard for certain nations to divorce the two. Well, next year on the late edition, the Republic of Ireland has unveiled an ambitious set of proposals to boost its rural economy as part of its economic plans to rebuild in the years after the pandemic. Well, on today's edition of The Globalist, we spoke to Emily Isoaho of the ETH Zurich University, who had more on the proposals for us. This is reportedly the first rural strategy coming out during or in the middle of the pandemic. So the Irish government just published it as as you called it. It's titled Our Rural Future. They're hoping to do a couple of things to rejuvenate Ireland's countryside. So one, they want to build a network of 400 remote working hubs and offer tax breaks uh, both for individuals as well as companies supporting home working and they are hoping also that 20% of the country's more or less 300,000 civil servants would work remotely by the end of the year and then this they could of course do from rural areas as well and not just from the cities and they're of course also investing in broadband rollout so you have good connections throughout the country and they're emphasizing people rather than buildings this time around. So in the early 2000s, there was a previous decentralization effort by the government, which uh, led to many government buildings being removed from Dublin. But this time their focus is again on people rather than buildings. 
Emily Isohara there speaking to us from our studio in Zurich a little earlier today. Uh, Chris, um, Emily puts some quite a fair amount of detail there into what the Irish government is planning. What do you make of these these proposals? Well, I, I thought it was interesting that, uh, for example, uh, you know, just, just the timing of it, the, the Taoiseach said that it, this is a, quote, unprecedented opportunity for rural development um, after the pandemic and I think that that says it all in a way. You know, Emily talked there a little about um, the fact that this had been tried before in Ireland as well. But this just this this time does feel different, doesn't it? Um, um, for many of us, just because I think there are many more people that are at least thinking about whether they uh, want or need to live in a city. You know, I wrote a, a little piece for the uh, Monaco Weekend Edition on Saturday um, about. Uh, also, the idea of of commuting, for example, and that there are surveys suggesting many people are more prepared to commute longer distances to work now than they were before, you know, up to an hour or two hours even, because of the fact that, you know, it's not just about uh, homeworking in that sense. It's about uh, working less often from the office, maybe only going into the office uh, two or or three times a week, you know, something like that. Um, and even that already in itself, in, in my mind at least, you know, uh, potentially opens up that opportunity, you would think, for people to kind of have it both ways in a way that maybe they didn't have it um, before, to maybe live in a more rural community, live in, in, in a greener space uh, with, with a bigger house, you know, uh, more opportunity to, to roam around, but at the same time, you know, to go into the city two to three times a week. And still experience, you know, the restaurants, the nightlife and everything that a city has to offer. So that's that's the positive way in, in, in my mind, you know, to, to look at it in terms of what the potential here could be, particularly for those kinds of countries like Ireland. And for that matter, you know, I think the UK as well. Some countries that are, are you know, very city centric or at least the economy is so based around one area around, you know, whether it's Dublin in the case of Ireland, you know, you, you just have such a concentration um, uh, within, you know, that goes beyond just this being an urban uh, area, if you will. You know, it's it's a super urban area, if you will. It's it's these 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 massive concentrations of work, of economies um, that really, you know, isn't necessarily necessary. Um, and isn't, it's nice to to potentially spread that out. What I think is interesting about this is that it's not just linked to this idea of work from home, as we were discussing, because to a certain extent, I can see why just increasing broadband speed and just encouraging people to work from home would benefit rural communities because you have more customers on the ground. But is that actually going to really affect the level of services, the level of investment, level of economic sustainability of these places if you don't have jobs actually based in those places if this is just i guess like virtual commuting then what does that do to the local community anyway and what i quite like about this different type of rural reinvention is that it is actually linked to the land in a way that isn't just harking back to the past but it's trying to find a new way of doing things and in so doing really redefining a relationship with this with the rural life that hasn't just got to do with, you know, an urbanite's idyllic fantasy of what it would be like to go live in the countryside and have a nice garden, but actually is engaging with rural life, which is part and parcel, you know, and it comes hand in hand with agricultural work as well. 
Well, finally here on The Late Edition. This year's Eurovision Song Contest is a mere 48 days away and our resident Eurovision correspondent, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, is in the coming weeks going to be speaking to some of those who'll be taking to the stage in Rotterdam on the 22nd of May. Today he spoke to Iceland's Eurovision hopeful, Daddy Freuer, who told us on today's edition of The Globalist about his own journey to the song contest. Baby, I can't wait to know In 2017 or in 2016, I wrote a song and sent it into the Icelandic competition for 2017. And it was never the plan to actually compete myself. It was just like uh, I wanted to try to send in a song and see if it would be accepted. And then I was going to get somebody else to sing it. In the end, that didn't work out. So I decided to do it myself. And and then I got, got the group together like my wife, my sister, and three other friends, because you can be six people on stage. So we created this group, Dada and Gagnamagne, around Eurovision. And we landed in second place, which was like a turning point for my career. That meant that all of a sudden, people in Iceland knew who I was, and I could be a professional musician. And then, yeah, we went back last year and won the Icelandic competition. And that didn't happen, so here we are. That was Daddy Freuer, their Iceland's representative for this year's Eurovision Song Contest, which will be held in Rotterdam in May. Kiara, excitement is building for this year's contest at Midori House and elsewhere. Um, and Monocle's had its own brush with another former Eurovision star relatively recently. Yeah, I've got to say I'm exceedingly proud of uh, be, having been able to feature Mahmood as part of the April issue of the magazine, which is uh, out on newsstand now. I mean, this is really our chance to win Eurovision and I'm so gutted that we were so close and it was snatched from us. Um, no, but Mahmood has had an incredible career for, uh, following his second place at Eurovision with Soldi. And has become, you know, incredibly successful internationally, ultra streamed and has now become a bit of a pop icon in Italy and beyond. Um, Going back to, I just wanted to comment on the Icelandic entry. I do hope that this can still happen for them because I think Daddy really had it last year. He would have had it. But that was, I think, undisputably the song that would have won the contest and it would have won Iceland its first Eurovision title and... I mean, since we've also had like the Netflix film about, I guess, Iceland's story in Eurovision, it was just a perfect kind of package, wasn't it? It would have been. And so I hope that he managed to do it this this year. But uh, the song is good, the song that he's got for this year. It doesn't quite match last year's, which is quite a shame. Um, But Chris and I have been listening to a few entries and we've kind of drawn up our favourites. You know, going back to Italy, I guess, um, uh, obviously the, the contestant for Eurovision is drawn from... Well, it is determined by the Sanremo Music Festival, which is an, an Italian competition. And this year, Maneskin won. It's quite a rocky band, which I, this, this is a thing. 
Italy doesn't actually have its sights set on the Eurovision stage because there were other songs in the competition that could have been, I think, a, a more an easier bet for us to actually do well on the Eurovision stage. We chose this really rocky number, which felt good about the Italian you know, scene at the time. I don't know how well it's going to go. Normally these rocky numbers are a bit of a novelty at Eurovision. This is called Zitti Buoni. It's in Italian, which I think is good. But we'll see how it will do. I don't know what Chris thinks about, you know, his Austrian entry or whether he reckons that somebody else has got it. Well, one of the things that is interesting about this competition uh, this year for me, I think, is that you have this mix of new and old acts in terms of who's coming back from last year. Of course, last year the competition was not held. Um, there was this quite really nice, I thought, uh, sort of show that was done that sort of played all the songs for all the artists, but there was no vote, there was no actual competition last year. And so then this year, you know, many had to decide whether to come back uh, with a different song. They weren't allowed, uh, as as Chiara mentioned there, for, for Iceland, they weren't allowed to play the song from last year. They had to come up with something new. What strikes me is that, you know, let's take the example of Daddy, he, he's gone with a very similar um, hit in a way, which you could argue on the one hand, he's trying to recreate that magic from last year when I I totally agree. He, he really was the, the foregone conclusion favorite um, for that competition. But it's kind of risky because you're then held up to that standard. And then this one, yes, it, it's really, it's still fun. He's the dance routine. Everything is kind of still there. But therefore, it also feels that little bit like, well, this has been done before. So to answer your question, Chiara, going to the Austrian entry, I find it interesting because it's also another guy who's coming back, Vincent Bueno, who was um, also one of the favorites uh, last year. He did quite well, um, or he was he was expected to do uh, quite well, and he had really very much uh, more of a dancey number, a kind of very upbeat uh, dance dance tone that he was going for. And he's completely flipped it this year with a song called Amen that's very much more in that uh, uh, ballad style that, that we all know and love from Eurovision. And really, that's where, to your point about the Italian entry, Chiara, as well, you never really know entirely with Eurovision yeah. what what is going to make it. And that's that's personally what I quite like always about the competition because sometimes it's just about the mood that strikes uh, the public, the people watching at home. Sometimes it's a very quirky entry that everyone gets behind because they just love how crazy it is and how weird it sounds. And, you know, heavy metal falls into that category. We all, uh, or those of us who know Eurovision, all remember Lordi from Finland, of course, from a number of years ago. So maybe Italy will fall into that category. They, At the same time, they just don't have the right combination, perhaps, of quirk and rock to go with that they have the hard rock but they don't have you know the viking style the helmets everything that went into lordy's performance which was so nuts and everybody anybody who hasn't seen it you know should watch you'll you'll be i think uh horrified and and at the same time transfixed by eurovision if you watch something like that so you know that that's always the question will it be a soulful happy song about optimism and Vincent Bueno and Amen and we should all come together. Is that what's going to do it? Or is it going to be a daddy with his, you know, typically quirky funk soul type 
type song. We just we just don't know. And for that reason too, the last thing I'd say is I like to not watch too many of them ahead of time. I did it just just for this because we had to prepare for this show. But generally, I just love getting them all in on the night to kind of be surprised and see what the performances are like. So I'm going to hold the rest of my commentary until 48 days from now. <laughs> I agree, Chris, and I think that's part of the magic of Eurovision for me. Is that these songs are such particular songs? They're written for a three-minute window that is meant to wow you in that short time span. And I think there's something really magic about that. To put you both on the spot, dark horses for this year to pluck a country uh, from the air. Who do you think might be a, a surprise at this year's contest in Rotterdam in a few weeks' time? Kiara, we'll start with you. Well, I always have a soft spot for the very classic, stereotypical, synth-heavy, you know, I want my Eurovision fix and I want it, you know, the way that I expect it. So I'm going to say that I hope with Fernando's blessing, um, I'm really rooting for Lithuania this year, uh, for the Roop with Discotheque. I mean, can you imagine a title that's any more perfect than that? <laughs> so no tearjerkers for Kiara. Chris, how about you? Who are you putting your dark horse money on this year? I've, I've really just got to back that, if I'm perfectly honest. Lithuania is that quirky uh, dark horse hit of, of the year. It's Discotheque, but it's also, you know, just just watch the performance, the dance that goes with it. It is, it is pretty fun, so, so who knows? Well, we'll be bringing you the lead-up to the Eurovision Song Contest in granular detail over the next couple of weeks here on Monocle 24. But for now, Chiara Romella and Chris Chermak, thank you to the two of you for being with us on the programme today. That is all we have time for for today's edition of The Late Edition. Our studio manager today was Sam Impey. A big thanks to her, as always, too. The Late Edition returns at the same time tomorrow. But in the meantime, do be sure to listen to the brand new episode of the Entrepreneurs, which premiered here on Monocle 24 a short while ago. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Thank you very much for listening and we'll see you tomorrow.